The task of a pastor is not simply to model the faith, but secondly, to mentor people into faith. To pick that certain selective group of people in a church that show at this moment the level of curiosity and um, show the ability to grow and who will profit from some extra special attention uh, if given to them by the pastor. I am the result of my mentors. In fact, I will probably switch away from the word mentor now and use the word coaching because I'm a little bit weary of mentoring as a, as a, as a word. But because of my family situation, because my father and I, um, despite what I said this morning, never felt a closeness to each other, a large part of my understanding of what it means to be a man and beyond that to be a man of God is the result of people who walked into my life and uh, became my coaches. I can go all the way back to my seventh year and name people in, in a chain link uh, who uh, played a role in shaping the person I became. So if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a sinful person, it's their fault. <laughs> One of the very first pastors who took an interest in me when I was seven years of age was a man who simply every time he saw me as a boy treated me with utmost dignity. Uh, he would sit down and ask me questions, listen to the things that were interesting to me. No other adult had ever done that before. And I learned from that experience, looking back on it, one of the most important things a pastor can do is to show interest in the children of his or her church. Um, when you see children, don't talk down to them. Go down on one knee and look at them eyeball to eyeball. Ask them fun little questions. Find out what it is that triggers their interest. What's your name? What does your name mean? How old are you? What do you like to do most? Little fun game I love to play with the children. If they come toward me and they're wearing a, a red coat, I'll say, that's a lovely yellow coat you're wearing. <laughs> it's not yellow, it's red. No, 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 it's, it's yellow. No, it's red. Well, how can you be sure? One little girl, after I'd played this game with her, went away and she said to her mother, Pastor Mac is a funny guy, but he sure doesn't know his colors. <laughs> <laughs> Show interest in children and you'll have their parents forever. There's nothing more you can do that, that enters parents' lives faster than when you take 30 seconds and show an interest in their son or their daughter. What does your name mean? Where'd you get it? What do you like about it? Do you like your name? So the first mentor I had, or the first coach, was a person who took interest in me that way. When I was a teenager, I had a coach who was literally a coach, my track and cross-country coach. Some of you have seen the book Resilient Life. That's really a book about him and the impact he had on my life in those early days. To this day, I can still hear his voice in the back of my head almost every day, challenging me, instructing me, affirming me. Uh, he was my father for several years. Then there was a couple in my college years uh, who lived down the street from where I was doing my university days. One day, night, they invited me to their home for dinner. The food was terrific, but what I quickly saw was that the value of being at this table was watching the way the two of those people related as husband and wife. 
the way they encouraged each other, the questions they asked each other, the way they, they, um, they worked together to solve little problems, the laughter, the serious discussion. I was mesmerized. I had never seen a husband and wife act like this before. And when they invited me back a second time, I prayed about it and took about four seconds to say yes. And before long, I was taking meals at their home almost every night of the week. And watching this couple with just awe as to the way they performed the acts of Christian love on behalf of one another, the way she loved her husband, the way he loved his wife. And I remember one night saying to myself, if I ever get a chance to be married, I want a woman just like her. And if I ever get a chance to be married, I want to be a man just like him. And when Gail and I met a little while later, uh, from my end, I built our whole model of marriage on what I'd seen in that home. There was a single man about 10 years older than me who became a coach. He taught me all the practicalities of being an adult, the importance of balancing my checkbook, leaving the bathroom the way I found it, uh, making my bed, being dependable. Uh, he was the person who was the master of rebuke. If you want to mentor, understand that a large part of mentoring and coaching is the negative side because this is the person who points up the impurities of life. When I was a young man, I heard these five rebukes from my coaches. You know, you have a tendency to use people, and then when you're through with them, you drop them. You know, you're not a man of your word. You make promises and you don't keep them. You know, you're not a very thankful person. You just assume people will do what you need. You know, you're quick to talk, but you're very slow to listen. And finally, you know, when people correct you, you're too defensive. I heard those five rebukes over and over again from my coaches. I really had to work hard to, to push them out of my character development. When I met Gail, the man who introduced us saw this romance blossom. We met in February of the year we were married in August. And about 10 days before our wedding, he took me out to lunch. And after we had ordered, I sensed that he had something very serious on his mind to say to me. And he did. He said, you know, Gordon, God has given to you an incredibly wonderful human being to marry. He means to say many things to you through her. And then he took his finger like this and he virtually put it into my eye. And he said over the table loudly and three times over, listen to her, listen to her, listen to her, because you're not a good listener. That's one of the most important pieces of advice I ever got in my life. I have a fear, looking backwards, that if I hadn't been told that that day with such force, I'd have blown Gail off time after time after time in our younger married years with the notion, I'm a man, I should have all the answers, you just watch. But when he said that, and when Gail began to add things to my life, observations, corrections, one thing or another, each time I would say to myself, listen to her, God may be speaking to you.
I learned that when we walked into a room where there was a Bible study or a party or a planning group, that Gail saw things and heard things that I didn't even know existed. She'd say to me, didn't you sense when he said that what his real feelings were? Didn't you see that couple over on the couch, the way they were looking at each other? There's trouble there. Didn't you feel the way that audience froze when you made that comment? And over and over and over again, she showed me the, the layers and depths of reality that I didn't know exist. Listening to her, asking questions, was one of the most important things that I ever learned from my coaches. Then there was the man I mentioned earlier in the day, Dr. Vernon Grounds, who was a coach to me for over 55 years. The most loving human being I've ever met in my life, apart from my wife, I guess. A man who walked with God, a man who saw all kinds of potential in me if I was willing to allow it to be released. The hours we sat together talking, questions, uh, him leading me through deeper thoughts in the Christian life that I could have ever had before. The one I went to whenever I needed wisdom about making deep and important life-changing decisions. Should I go to this church? Should I join this operation? Should I be a part of this board? He was the go-to person that I needed to add perspective to the choices I was making in life. He died four years ago at the age of 96. About two months before he died, I remember sitting with him and I said, Vernon, I've got to go. I've got a plane to catch. But before I walk out of the room, would you please pray for me? And he leaned forward and he grabbed my hands. He was one of these people who, who, who exercised the, the ministry of touch very powerfully. And he pulled me toward him until our, our foreheads were touching like that. And he prayed. And when he got through with his prayer, he said, I love you. I love you. I love you. You are my son. And then I lost him. A great coach builds within his coachees a sense of well-being, a sense of confidence, a sense that we are on the right track with God. And a pastor always needs to have, I'm going to just run an arbitrary number, between five and ten people that he is making an impact upon. And those of you who are not pastors, for example, spouses, I, I want to encourage you to think through this yourself. Uh, obviously, most mentoring is done male to male, female to female. But Gail and I have always tried in our lives to have a few select people that we were making a greater than average investment in that somehow would take our impact in their lives uh, off to the, the ways in which God uh, would be served. About 15 years ago, um, we came to a point where we realized that, that we really needed to upgrade this whole notion of mentoring people. I had spoken for the weekend uh, to the West Point Cadet uh, squad, Squadron, I forget the exact word for it, but the, the whole military uh, service academy that trains the American officers who staff the U.S. Army. And uh, I was deeply, deeply impressed with the quality of women and men I'd met all weekend, the questions they asked, the challenges that they, they gave to me. 
And I walked away from that experience at West Point asking myself the question, what's the equivalent of West Point in our church? And the answer was, there is none. We have no way of identifying key women and key men in our church and pouring training into them so that one day they could be the leaders both in the church, in other organizations, or the community, as God might call them. And for a couple of years, I, I kept muttering about this back at our church. I'd sit with the staff and I'd say, you know, we need to have this really upgraded development program for, for young leaders. Who will take charge of this? And everybody would smile at me and be very courteous and then slink away because nobody wanted the job. And finally, after two years, Gail said to me, you know, the problem that's going on here is that this is such a novel idea that the only person who can make this work in the organization is the so-called number one person, and that's you, she said. And I've been thinking about this, and she said, if you want to do this, I would be glad to do it with you as your partner, not as your secretary or your assistant, but, but I want to have 50% of this program myself. Well, that's a pretty good deal, especially if you're married to Gail. She went on with a few other ideas. She said, I think we need to do it in our home and not in the church building. It needs to be done in a more hospitable environment. It needs to be done with a very, very high level of commitment that's unlike anything else in the church. So for months, we talked, we dreamed, we prayed about this. We talked about it with other people. And finally, one year, we set out and we said, let's make a list of 25 people we think would be eligible for such an idea. And our notion was, we'll make it so hard to do that only 14 or 15 of the 25 will say yes. And that's exactly what happened. We made a list for about three months. We watched these people. We were asking questions like, how curious are they? How motivated are they? Uh, how mature are they? We went right down a list of eight or 10 different things. And we invited all those people to come to our house one night for dinner. We said, have we got a deal for you? We're willing to spend a whole year pouring our lives into you every Monday night for three hours. If you'll be willing to scrape your calendar clean and come every Monday night and don't miss, the only reason you would be permitted to miss is if you're dying, and then we want to know from your doctor. <laughs> this means if you get tickets on the front row of a major basketball game, you won't go. You have to be with us on Monday night. If you're not willing to give us 40 Monday nights, tell us no, we'll be grateful that you were honest with us. But if you're willing to give 40 Monday nights, we will try to orchestrate an experience of, of spiritual growth and development that, that you have never had before. Well, that first year we got our 14 or 15, and it was incredible. It's remarkable what you can do with well-motivated people who will pay a high price to become a part of something that nobody else wants to do. And that's one of the problems in our churches. We always design our programs for the average 75% person. We rarely ask ourselves, who are the people in this congregation, this ministry, that if we really poured some valuable time into them, they would show growth overnight? That's what Jesus did. For three years, he sunk himself into 12 men. He, he was with them 80% of his time, as far as I can see. He told them everything. And then when he was ready to expand and, and to leave them, 
he said, no longer do I call you my servants, you are my friends. And he went on from there, you now have the authority, go out into the world and do to other people what I have done to you. Twelve, fifteen at a time. Jesus had what we call, I think, a hundred-year strategy. He knew he would die and go back to heaven long before the work was completed. What he did was he set in motion 12 men who expanded 12 or more at a time, and over a hundred years the strategy was reached. Within a hundred years of Jesus' time on earth, basically the world had been practically covered by the Christian gospel because Jesus was willing to spend the majority of his time with 12 people rather than 1,200. A good pastor is a coach. And for 15 years, Gail and I did that. Every year, a new group, 14, 15 people. And it was an incredible, it was one of the most satisfying experiences we've had. And those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, you'll find the story of it in the book Going Deep, uh, which came out a couple, of, two or three years ago. And maybe it will help you to think about the way uh, you could possibly develop an idea for mentoring or coaching uh, key leaders in, in your congregation. We eventually uh, enlarged the age range of people we invited until one year, literally, we had one couple that were 72 years of age. But they were so enlivened, so electric, so curious, so motivated, that even at that age, they made an incredible contribution to the group. They became kind of grandparents types to some of the younger single and married couples that were in the group. It was wonderful. One of the highlights of every year, about halfway through the year, was the, write, the reading. Uh, each person was challenged to write his or her life story and read it to the group. And we taught them how to do this, so it was, it was done very, very well. And it would take about an hour for a person to read the story of their lives. The first thing I learned, which was, you, you'll be amazed when I say this, that was that the first thing I learned was that almost every person's story has an element of suffering in it. We really don't know very well many of the people of our congregations. Uh, we're really a bit naive about how much suffering is going on in the pews of our churches that will only become evident to us if we challenge people to be brave enough to write their family stories. Of the, of the 125, 130 people that Gail and I coached over those years, probably six or seven women um, for the first time revealed that they'd had abortions in life and were living with whatever the after effects of that had been for them. Men talked about, for the first time, what it had been like to be fired from career jobs. Some couples talked about what it had been like to reach the verge of breakup in their marriages for one reason or another. There were incredible stories. This older couple I told you about, there came the night when this wife was to read her story, and I dreaded it because she was such a nice, gentle lady, and I just couldn't imagine anything in her life that would be exciting as a testimony. <laughs> so I thought the evening was going to be kind of a bit of a loser, and uh, the moment came, and she started to read her story. Uh, everybody manuscripted their story. She said something like this, when I was a little girl, my father was a farmer, and she named the part of the country. And um, 
we had a wonderful life on the farm. And at the end of the day, he would come from the fields and he would push me on the swing under the old oak tree for 15 or 20 minutes. And I just loved being with my daddy. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, brother, we've got to spend a whole hour listening to this. So she went on about a few other nice things about her girlhood. And then suddenly she said, at the age of 19, I went down one day to the village to fill the car up with gasoline. And while I was filling the car, a man drove up, and we got talking, and he invited me to have a cup of coffee with him, and so we went down to the cafe and had a cup of coffee and a nice chat. Um, and he asked me to have dinner with him another day or two, and I said yes, and that meant more dinners, and we would meet and have these lovely conversations. Then she paused. She looked it up us, uh, looked at us and then read, and then one day I discovered I was pregnant. And I didn't know what to do. And it got worse when I discovered that this man had a wife and three children that he'd kept from me. And my whole world fell apart. She said I went off to another state in the country without anybody knowing it and uh, had an abortion. And now I'm 60 years later or whatever it was. This is the first time I've ever told anybody about this except my husband. And this whole group is sitting in this circle listening to this. We are absolutely frozen in our seats by this woman who has lived with the secret all of her life, having had no one to talk to about it. But the first time she's found a group she can trust deep enough to give some of the details of the suffering in her life. And there came a magic moment when all the women in the circle, realizing what this woman was saying, they all just suddenly all flocked around her. They all wrapped their arms around her. And they just loved her to death that night. The most sacred experiences I've ever had in all of my pastoral life. In seeing what a fully developed group can accomplish for each other as they see the depths of, of suffering, of possibility, of the need for encouragement. And I can remember thinking in moments that happened like that, and there were many moments like it. It just doesn't get any better than this. Uh, some people want to preach to 5,000 people. I'm much more content to sit with a group of 15 people who are willing to trust each other and help each other grow. So part of the pastoral ministry is not only modeling the faith, but secondly, it's the decision to coach eligible people into being the leaders in the faith for the years to come. Let me give you the third of the four-point outline. You've probably forgotten that there were four points by now. Pastoral ministry is not only about modeling the faith and coaching potential people, but pastoral ministry is about caring. I can't find a better word. It's... It's the projection of the pastor into the lives of the people around him or her and seeing the places where they're, to use the shepherd's language, straying or wounded and moving toward them to bring to them the grace that God means to mediate through each of us to each other. If you're taking notes, <clears throat> let me give you a, a thought. <coughs> A pastor can divide his or her time 
between five or six kind of people. First of all, we can, we can divide our time to encounter what I would call the VRP, the very resourceful person, which is a kind of a glib way of saying, I've got to have some people in my life who are coaches all the way through my years. These are people who bring me judgment, wisdom, encouragement, and rebuke. I need to have three or four VRPs in my life at any given time until you reach my age, and now suddenly you've outlived all your VRPs and there's nobody more around. So in one sense, I feel a little bit vulnerable and lonely today because all my mentors are gone. Who are your VRPs? If you don't have them, let me push you to start thinking about who they could be. The second kind of people I need in my life are VIPs. These are the very important people who are peers to me. They work with me on a pastoral team. They may be salaried people or they may be lay people who do what they do unsalaried because my church is in a smaller variety right now. But there ought to be a cluster of people that I'm developing all the time and we work together. We share the load of ministry. We encourage one another. We help each other without being asked, who are the VIPs? The third group of people are the VTPs, the very trainable people. I've just been talking about them. They're the men and women that I'm looking at, scouting out there and saying, this woman or this man can be a godly leader in this church or beyond the church and other places within a period of time if I invest in them. Then there's a fourth group. These are the VNPs. This is the largest group in any congregation. VNP stands for very nice people. The VNPs fill the church sanctuary. They listen to you and me preach. They sing the songs. They put a small bill in the offering plate each week. They come and go depending on whether the programs are attractive enough. But they make very little positive contribution to the life of the church. They just fill things up. They make it necessary to buy parking lots and to program at the most convenient times because if we push them too hard, they'll drop away. But it's in the VNPs that we find potential converts, we find potential leaders. You've got to be good to them, you've got to love them even though they may not love back as much as you wish. Churches are filled with VNPs. Then there's one more group. There's the VDPs. These are the very draining people. My own crazy theory over the years is that one out of 30 is a VDP. You know a VDP because they've got to talk to you at the end of every service. They've always got some kind of criticism, some kind of complaint. They're always hurt for one reason or another. And if you help them solve a problem, they'll create another problem to keep you attended to them. We all have VDPs. Now, VDPs come in two different types. There's the VDP-1. <laughs> Don't you love this technicality? I just love this stuff. The VDP-1 is the person who makes a career out of having problems. And they will keep your schedule filled unless you get reasonably loving, tough with them. I notice that you need to talk with me every Sunday morning at church is over. Uh, I notice also that because we talk every week, I can't talk to other people. 
Could you give some thought to the fact that, you know, there may be occasions when we have to have a conversation, but that, but that I really need to give myself to other people during this 10 or 15 minutes? Oh, yeah, I could do that. I hadn't thought about that. But we've got to keep our VDP-1s under control or under discipline. At Grace Chapel, we had elders detailed uh, to be at front uh, at the end of every service. They knew who the VDPs were. And so they would protect Gail and they would protect me from these people who always wanted to talk to us every Sunday. They'd find their way to kind of form a barrier and they'd say to such and such a person, I know you want to see the pastor, but he needs to see other people this week. So if you need a prayer or you need a, a word of counsel, I'll be glad to talk with you for a moment. So our elders became our bodyguards so that we were free. Now, VDP2s, on the other hand, you'll be thrilled to know this, are people who do have problems, but if the problem gets resolved, they will quickly spring up to health and strength and be grateful for you, for your minutes, for your prayers, for your counsel. And to those kind of people, um, pastoring can be a, a great blessing. So I'm just throwing out what's really interesting is to try to look at the people of my congregation as a pastor and say, who are the people who fill each of these categories? And what ought to be my relationship to them? Where can I help them and where do I need uh, to back away from them? In caring, and I, I've got to move past this rather quickly, one of the most important things a pastor can do, and, and, and a lot of us, I, I fear, have forgotten this, one of the most important things a pastor can do is to pray for people, to bless them. Become a master of the prayer of blessing. When Ground Zero happened in 9-11, and such devastation happened in the southern part of Manhattan and New York, uh, Gail and I immediately went to New York City, and we joined with the Salvation Army officers. And we were right in the pit for the next seven or eight days with the policemen and the firefighters who were looking for survivors and for body parts. Uh, I was right in the middle of it. Gail was at the edge of it in a first aid station uh, giving all kinds of medicines to firefighters and policemen who were hurt in, in the devastation that we were, uh, were facing. As I would walk through the carnage, the mess every day, and you've seen pictures of all that, I became a friend with a, a Franciscan monk. He was a man at that time about my age who wore the brown habit of the Franciscans with the white rope around his waist. Beautiful shock of gray hair. And we would walk together among these thousands of men and women who were sorting out the rubble, listening carefully to see if they could hear the cries of any survivors. And over and over and over again, when we appeared in various places, men in the firefighting groups and the policemen would, would rush toward us and they would come up to this monk and they would begin to kneel in front of him and they'd say, Father, would you please bless me? Or Father, would you hear my confession? And they'd kneel there and he'd put his hands on their heads like this. And then with his finger, he would trace the sign of the cross on their forehead and he would say something like this. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, his son Jesus Christ, and the filling of the Holy Spirit may be upon you this day for a blessing. And I sign you with the cross. 
You'd send them on their way. I was a Protestant. I'd never seen this before. But I noticed in almost every situation that these men would leave our presence. There was relaxation. There was a sense of calmness. They had been blessed by the Father. And one day I said to him, when was the last time anybody blessed you? He said, it's been a long time. I said, could I? And he sank to his knees in front of me, and I put my hands on his head like I'd watched him do. Blessed be the God of our fathers, the Father of Jesus Christ, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And with them I sign you with the sign of the cross. And I realized that day how deeply so many of us crave the blessing of the person who represents God. And every place I went, I began to tell stories like that. And over and over again, at the end, people would come toward me and say, would you bless me? And they'd kneel, and I would press the sign of the cross in their foreheads. And for so many of us who are not used to that kind of thing, it was an incredibly emotional experience. And I realized how badly we pastors need to recover that kind of transaction to give the person in our pathway who's looking for it the blessing, the touch, the sign of the cross. That's what pastors can do. Finally, in caring, pastors become masters of the questions. We walk through life each day finding the appropriate questions that make people feel cared for, loved, feeling safe to open their hearts to somebody to tell us where they're at at that moment. Let me give you an example of some questions. I'm looking into your eyes and I'm sensing fatigue or I'm sensing hurt or I'm sensing a feeling that something's gone really wrong. Have I seen the right thing in your eyes? Or What's behind that word you just used? That's a strong word. Or, let me tell you what I'm hearing you say. Or, what's your world like today? Or, what challenges does a man like you face? One of the most creative questions which um, I've used with much benefit is with a person I've never met before, and we are sitting down to breakfast or lunch or coffee, and I'll say to them, Tell me the whole story of your life in four minutes. And everybody does what some of you just did. They laugh. Over the years that I preached, I, I devised a little bit of a mechanism that made, I felt for some people, uh, a little bit more sense. I, I divided up the congregation, and I would say this quite um, frequently. If you're here this morning, you're one of four kinds of people. Some of you are here as spectators. You've come because someone dragged you here, or you're curious, or you're facing a difficulty and you thought church might be an answer to your problem, but you're just sitting out there watching. And you may or may not agree with what you're seeing, but you're watching. And that's just fine. As long as you want to keep coming and being a spectator, you are thoroughly welcome into the life of this church. But every once in a while, there is a spectator who suddenly hears something that triggers something in their hearts. And they become a seeker. 
And a seeker is a serious asker of questions. They're saying to themselves, if this question is answered for me, I could see being a part of this. So some people came as spectators and they become seekers. And that's great. Seek as long as you want. But every once in a while, among the seekers, a person steps forward and says, I will become a follower. And in that moment, they choose to link arms with Jesus and in faith to say, I will begin to develop my life around what I'm learning from him. So if you've come today as a seeker and you've made the decision to come forward as a seeker, you're welcome. But every once in a while, there's a seeker who decides that Jesus has a deeper mission of personal development and growth and service. And so among the followers, there are a few builders of the kingdom. So if you want to become a builder, we're here to help you. And my point at the end is every one of us in this room is one of those four. Which one are you and what would it take for you to make one step forward? That's what we call the process of conversion. I found that people were much more open to that kind of a process than you're either in or out, saved or unsaved. And some people will struggle with that idea, but we've got to understand now, we are bringing our gospel to a culture that has no idea of how to approach the presence of the living God. And a pastor must help his or her people to do that. So I've tried to work hard over the years to make sure that I was engaged in some regular way with people in my world who don't profess belief. And if they're ever going to do it, it'll be partly because somehow I have said or done something that attracts them to, and points them to Jesus. In the church where Gail and I worship, when we're not out doing things like this, there is a, a man who's now about, I'm guessing, 42 years of age. His name is Steve. His wife's name is Cindy. They have three children. Several years ago, Steve and Cindy walked through the door of our church. It was at a time when our church didn't have a pastor and I was filling the pulpit as a kind of a, a substitute until they could find the right person. And I happened to be at the back of our church building as Steve and his family walked through the door for the first time. And because I'd never met them, seen them before, I went forward and I met them. And I said, what brings you here today? Well, Steve said, we just realized that we're curious about religion and we think our boys are at a certain point where they better get a chance to become acquainted with it to make their own choices. So we're just here. And we don't know whether we'll be back again, but we came just to watch. I said, Steve, that's terrific. I said, let me really get you a good seat. And I made a big thing out of calling one of the ushers over and I said, these are very, very important people. Get them a box or a box seat. And uh, so we all had a good laugh about this. And as they got, went toward their pew, I said, Steve, I, I'm only going to ask you one thing. At the end of the service, before you leave the building, would you come over where I am and tell me what you thought of the morning? Yeah, I'll do that, he said. He's a business person. He understood that kind of idea. So at the end of the service, he came over and he said, we, we've had a good time. We'll be back next Sunday. So for the next several Sundays, Steve and Cindy came to church and they'd sit in various places and we would encounter each other every once in a while. And one morning I saw him and I said, Steve, uh, would you have breakfast with me this week? 
He said, yeah, I'd enjoy that. And we set out a time to meet and uh, a place. And the morning came and we sat down and I pulled the tell me the whole story of your life in four minutes thing. And <laughs> he laughed. And then he did something no one had ever done to me. He said uh, at the end of his four minutes, he said, so tell me the story of your whole life in four minutes. <laughs> and I realized in that moment what, what this question is all about. And when I got through, he said, so what made you a preacher? And I tried to say some nice things about the life of the preacher. And um, he said, well, it really sounds good. He said, I'd, I'd sure like to, to, to watch you in motion more. I said, and then I had this brainstorm. I said, Steve, I'll make you a deal. Why don't you come to church next Sunday morning and sit with Gail and me in the front row and just follow me all morning long. Watch what I do, what I talk to with people. That'll give you an idea of what a pastor does. He said, I'll do that. So the next week, he and Cindy came with their children, and they all sat in the second row, and Steve sat next to me on one side, Gail on the other. And I said to him, I may ask you to do a few things for me, like get a glass of water or something. And he said, sure, I'll be glad to do anything. And so for the next six or eight weeks, Steve sat at my shoulder every Sunday morning, and he watched this whole thing unfold. And then one Sunday, he said, you know, I'd like to do this for a few more months. Is it possible? I'm learning a lot, he said. And so week after week, Steve sat with me and watched this whole thing, would ask questions. One Sunday morning, I said, you know, I like to pray before every morning begins. Would you mind praying with me? He said, no, I'd be glad. I said, would you pray first? He looked at me and said, you've got to be kidding. He said, I would never pray uh, in front of you. And I said, okay. So I prayed. Uh, and this went on. And one day Steve came to me and he said, you know, I think this week I became a follower of Christ. I don't know quite how it happened, but I realized Christ is there, and, I, and I'm, I'm praying to him every once in a while. Well, I'm going to end this story simply by saying there came a day uh, when I needed to go to the airport an hour's drive away, and I said to Steve, would you drive me to the airport? He said, sure, be glad to. He owned his own business. He could do this kind of thing. Drove me to the airport, and as I'm getting out, he says to me, isn't anybody going to pray for you before you go on this trip? <laughs> I said, why? You got ideas? He said, yeah, let me pray for you. <laughs> Put his hand on me, gave me the blessing, and prayed for me and sent me off. Steve Chartier and his wife Cindy today are incredible Christian people. They have started a small kind of boutique mission in the country of Malawi, are responsible for getting educational funds for 150, 150 Malawian children. They go there for eight weeks every summer uh, to, uh, to work with Malawan people in a small village. And I have watched the work of evangelism in their lives and seen what's possible when we bring Christ to people in a very deliberate way. And I'm convinced that pastors have got to be engaged more and more in this personal experience of drawing people to the Savior and making a difference in their lives. So here we are. At the core, like the marching soldier, pastors do four things. They model the faith, they mentor people, they care for the broken, and they lead the lost to Christ. I would hope for each of you, you can find that experience in, in your lives also. And with that, I think I'll bring this to a close because we only have 11 more minutes. And I'm going to give you one more chance and opportunity to feed back to me. Are there any important things you've heard today 
um, very provocative keywords or ideas uh, which are worth taking away from here. Uh, help me out and, and give me some thought about where you're coming from in all of this. But can you kind of shout out nice and loud that feedback? Is that so everyone can hear? Is that right? Say it loudly, Tom, with vigor. Pretend you're an operatic singer. <laughs> uh, the pastor as a master of questions. We ought to have a whole course in school on how to ask good questions. Um, and, and it really becomes a lot of fun to see what question can I ask that will open up your heart. Uh, and I'll just leave it there. Somebody else. Okay, thank you. That's part of the strategic part of ministry. That we, we, we had a great military general in World War II by the name of George Marshall. And uh, one day he was interviewed just before World War II began by a reporter who said to him, do the American generals have the ability to win a world war if it breaks out? And he immediately said, no. They could win World War I, but they can't fight World War II. And the reporter said, well, what are you doing about that? And Marshall reached into his uh, shirt pocket and he pulled out a little black book. And he showed the reporter several pages of names of, of officers who were serving down in the lower ranks of the army. He said, these are the men we're developing. We have given them jobs which are almost impossible to do, and we watch the way they behave and the way they treat people and the uh, way they create strategy. These are the men who will win World War II. And on that list was General MacArthur, General Patton, General Bradley, all those men who came over to Europe and into the Pacific and became part of the Allied force and became, for the American side, uh, the men who won the war five years later. General Marshall understood the strategic view of ministry, that you're always looking ahead and saying, who are the people who will be carrying the ball three or four years from now? And that, that's a very pastoral instinct to, to have that. Others of you, I see, I see that hand. You can put that <laughs> hand down. <laughs> Crave the blessing. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say except... That is emphatically important, and in our Protestant evangelical tradition, we've lost it. Uh, but what a power there is in reaching out and, and blessing people in a very specific way and, 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 and allowing the Holy Spirit to use that encounter. Thank you. Showing an interest in children. Can I add one to that? That's not only really, really, really important, but showing an interest in old people. Our, our, often our churches are ringed on the outer edges of the sanctuary with old people who think no one's interested in them anymore. I know I've been there. Young people tend to look straight through old people. I know what it's like. I'm learning what it's like to walk down the sidewalk and young people walk toward you. They don't even notice you're there. And I, I understand why old people can become very sad. They just feel like the world no longer exists for them. And in our churches are these old people who 30 years ago were the chairman of this and the builder of that and the runner of this, and now no one knows what their contribution was any longer. Old people need to, old people need to be touched. Touch the person on the cheek. 
Sometimes you just need to put an arm around them in a very discreet way. But you know, old people can go for days and days and days and no one ever touches them. So it's important. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a very powerful transmission of the love of Christ to people. Anybody else over here? Yes, ma'am. The fact that I've you know, been hearing people say, but we're so busy, how can we do all this? But actually, when you were talking about having people in very young people. Thank you for raising that. That's great. I don't know a full answer to your question. I just know that we've gone so far in the other direction that it's going to be a good while before we get in trouble going to the other extreme. Um, <laughs> Uh, there, you know, there, there is in the Bible this incredible role that the priest plays. And we threw out this language more or less when the Reformation happened 600 years ago. Uh, we Protestants don't like priests. And yet, um, a priest is a very important function. It, it, you could equate pastors and priests in, in, in some way or another. I'd even go so far, and, and I'm going to turn you off sooner or later, saying, I don't think it would be bad if pastors were called father or mother. Because that kind of terminology turns people back toward the loss that many of them experience. I don't have a father. I don't have a mother. And this man or woman who leads my congregation or who's close to me, they, they become the person God has given to me. Uh, to speak priestly words into my life. And I, I'm, I'm afraid we've gotten away from that because the emphasis today on pastors is uh, he or she's got to be a person of vision and we've got to build these really powerful organizations. And, but, but what we've, we've done to ourselves is we've lost the soft side, the loving side, the, the transactional side that gives people food for the heart. So that's where I'm coming from in that. It is lunchtime, Toby, isn't it? Where are you? <laughs> I'd, li I'd like to make an announcement that you don't get credit for fasting just because you didn't eat at 12. Um, well, I feel like I've just I've sat down and eaten genuinely a very rich meal and have a huge amount to go away and chew on and pray about and talk over. Can we just, just please, just for one moment, just stay here. Um, can we show our appreciation to Gordon? <laughs>